Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. Joining me, as always, every week, Evan Mateer. How's it going, man? I'm um, good, Gabe. What's going on? Not much, man. I'm sitting here drinking a uh, Spanish Spanish wine, just uh, ruminating on the mysteries of uh, the world of football. <laughs> it, it is a bizarre place, especially when we start going to international breaks and there's not matches to, to preview or write about or think about. Right, or talk about on this show. So, like, this is, uh, yeah, this is your international break, Let's Fix Football. Um, because of that, I mean, there's a lot of shit going on in the world, and basically the show, we're just going to kind of run down the way the weekend went in Europe. Um, and then, uh, you know, our, our kind of looking forward preview will include a little bit about the international things, but really, we have our big interview uh, about, you know, kind of the political situation in Spain, Catalonia, and and in the NFL. So that's that's great. We've got uh, James Brushton from um, SP Nation's uh, AC Milan blog, um, SP Na- uh, AC Milan Offside, and uh, AC Nation's Aston Villa blog, uh, 7500 to Holt, joining us uh, later in the show. So that was a great interview. I think you all are going to really enjoy it. All right. Starting off this week, <laughs> I wanted to start off this week in England, Evan, and this is why. Uh, reports circulated today that uh, <laughs> one of the funniest stories in all of English football uh, was from a, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. In 2004, there was a big fight on the pitch of the uh, Arsenal United game, and that pitch, boil, that fight boiled over into the locker rooms and included a incident where an unnamed Arsenal player whipped a pizza at Sir Alex Ferguson, a full pizza right at his face. So the whole thing. Yeah, that's my understanding. Um, and it, it, a report have emerged today as um, Chess Fabregas went on English TV and was interviewed. And uh, apparently Chess has admitted that he was the dude who whipped the pizza at Sir Alex Ferguson. He just admitted this. He just admitted it. He was asked about it, and uh, yeah, he was. Everyone is, and this is the best. This is a. This is a, this this whole uh, article is filled with incredible. And I'm reading from ESPN. So if everyone heard the in the background the uh, audio that just played, because that's I'm on ESPN and they just have audio that plays on their site, oh, which is the fucking worst. By absolute the way. worst. So. I, I don't know how I'm going to read this without that playing, but I'm just going to do my best. Uh, he has long been suspected <laughs> of being responsible, but nobody from either side of the scuffle has ever fully accused the Spanish midfielder, a teenager at the time, of casting that fateful slice. Okay, look, it looks like it was just a slice of pizza. It's still e- extremely funny. It's and really, it's- really funny. And I mean, so the pro- – I mean – the concept, first off, of throwing an entire pizza, I was trying to figure out the physics of that. Like, do you throw it like a discus? Or it's got to be a discus kind of, if you're whipping you kind of whole pizza. heave the thing? But a slice, you have so many more. You could yeah. also kind of flick it like a discus. Um, but you could, like, just ball that bad boy up and just yeah. fucking shit, too. Or, like, so, whip it, like, 
face first. Like that's the way I was imagining. That's it. Like, the way I would do. I would I would pitch it kind of like open palm, like towards him, yeah. kind of like a shot put it. Yeah, yeah, because first. that way there's the highest possibility of the the sauce f- side landing on his face. Right. Well, and so the thing is, I can imagine that's pretty dangerous, right? Because we've all burned our our mouths on the you know top of our mouths on hot pizza. Imagine that shit just fucking clobbering you in the cheek. Yeah. So here's what Chesk said. Um, Yes, all of a sudden, I heard noises in the tunnel, and I thought, what's happening? So I go out with my slice of pizza, and I saw Sol Campbell, Real Ferdinand, and Martin Cohn, everyone pushing each other. I was like, I want to get involved, but I don't know how how to, and I just threw it. Once I saw who it was hitting, well, I didn't mean it. I apologize, Sir Alex. I really didn't mean to do that. So... Okay, he wasn't even trying to hit Sir Alex with the pizza, but he did hit him with the pizza. And that's the coolest part about it. Like, the fact that the manager was involved in that brawl at all, right? And the second fact that Chesk whipped a pizza at the brawl. Like, that was his idea. Like, oh, I'm going to whip the pizza at The best – like, he doesn't come up and say, hey, guys, cut it out. No, it's like, well, I've got the slice of pizza. That seems like the best option. (laughs) Instead of, like, going back, dropping the pizza off, and then rushing back out to fight or just, like – Dropping the pizza and rushing over. No, the move is let's whip the pizza at them. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, okay, so. Do, do you think whatever ESPN blogger wrote this is aware of the implication of using right. the word Pizzagate? So that's the really uh, extremely also funny part about this. So the ESPN soccer bloggers have all been referring to this as Pizzagate. And so for any American <laughs> listeners, this is an extremely funny thing to call this because. During the 2016 election cycle, there was a conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton and other Democratic operatives were operating a child sex ring out of a pizza uh, place in uh, D.C. where they would go and bang kids. American politics, ladies and gentlemen. Right. That is the act American politics story. It started on the Internet and it it got people so crazy that a dude actually went to this pizza place where like my like my little cousins who are like seven and ten go. And the dude went in with a fucking AR-15 and shot around into the ceiling before being like, wait a minute, there's no one fucking kids in this pizza place, which is wildly unfunny. Um, given recent news. Yes, sorry, yeah, it is. <laughs> I shouldn't be allowed. The, the problem is this, right? So obviously people shooting up like civilians is not funny, especially right now, but the whole idea of Pizzagate is an objectively, and outside of any political news and outside of any recent news, it is just objectively funny. And the fact that like ESPN didn't remember or didn't consider the fact that this is a possible issue when they titled their articles about Chess Fabregas whipping pizza, Pizzagate is also funny. It's all funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the way I'm going to choose to interpret all of this is to understand that Arsenal and fuck Arsenal were involved in a child sex ring in Washington, D.C. <laughs> somewhere around 2004. <laughs> That's a really good point. I mean, what type of pizza was Chess whipping? I mean, like, and what way is it really a pizza? And was he really throwing it? Or I mean, like, and was was Sir Alex Ferguson really involved, or was it actually a child? Right, or was that just a child? Like, this is a Who whole. He, instead of hitting with a slice of pizza, he molested. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> Did a... you know that Fabregas is a child molester? 
that's what I've heard, and that's what uh, we're going to choose to take out of this, and that's from now on um, something that we're going to believe, and that's... Uh, live, live your truth. Live our truth, and, you know, that's a fact, so... Facts. Uh, so this weekend <laughs> in England uh, was, I think, uh, the main story out of England this week, Evan, aside from Pizzagate exploding, uh, was... City versus Chelsea, which had a number of different storylines going into it. Um, City ended up winning the match, but, you know, arguably losing the war by losing Aguero for six weeks. Um, as yeah, from that, from, from that match. Car accident, right? So, like, you had this whole debate about, like, what was he doing? And I think he was in, like, Amsterdam or some shit, seeing a concert and got in a car accident. It was totally not his fault. And now he's a broken rib and apparently can't leave his house even. Um, while that heals. So he's gone for six weeks. And I think the big question is, you know, cities look to be the class of the Premier League, I think. Um, and the question is, you know, do they have the, the talent up top to to uh, to keep pace with United and, you know, potentially right. also Spurs and Chelsea without the goal scoring from Aguero? Because, I mean, they have good talent up uh, up top in in uh, in Gabriel Jesus and and. Right. Um, and Saitomani, right? Yeah, um, and and uh, De Bruyne, obviously, and, and De Bruyne, but but I mean, none of them have quite the track record over the years of Aguero. Aguero has been doing it in the Premier League for you know for a while now, and so that's just I think that's just a story to follow and see how their goal scoring goes without Aguero. Um, but they still still to me are probably the class of the Premier League. Yeah, I agree. I I wonder like moving forward, how this is going to affect them and whether this is just because what there were some rumors, Evan, that that Pep didn't actually love having Aguero, that he wasn't like Pep's first choice anyway. So maybe he'd like to move away and move towards like a a squad where he gets to start Gabriel Jesus more um, and, and, and really just run with that as kind of his attacking line anyways. So maybe, I mean, but I'm also just speculating and obviously he was trying to go out and get, um, you know, get 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 different attacking players to bolster that offensive line. So maybe in January he goes out and gets someone else too. Also, uh, leading into this, uh, Chelsea lost Alvaro Morata. Um, that sucks. He's been great for Chelsea, um, and uh, you know this is just a. It's an interesting period because uh, Yo, United... to, ra- to round it all out, Lukaku had an injury, but it looks like it's actually not so serious. But they were uh, thinking it was potentially a fracture or something with his ankle. But he had a uh, he had a I guess an X-ray or something. It doesn't look so bad. Right, and it, it's just been a kind of fracturous period uh, for in England with with a lot of different injuries, including like obviously the Pogba injury is brutal. Uh, you know, and, 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 and just across the league, we've seen just, you know, brutal injuries afflicting a lot of these teams. And, you know, this is not this is not an easy period for, I think, almost any any of the any of the sides in the top, you know, in the top four. I mean, I think maybe uh, Spurs is actually the best position to take advantage of some of these injuries, assuming there is a drop in form from any of City, Chelsea, United. I don't know. What hey, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it could be. So Spurs look better in attack injury-wise, but they've got two problems. One is they're banged up in the the central midfield, right? So Iwanyama is out. He's hoping to come back soon. Dembele is out, and we don't really know what's going on with him. Um, And so they've been having to roll with basically Eric Dyer and Harry Winks to hold down the— uh, hold down the pivot, which they're good, but they're only two guys. And we've got a brutal stretch of uh, matches coming up, including a couple matches with Real Madrid, 
uh, match with Liverpool, North London Derby at the beginning of November, and then finishing off our Champions League group with uh, with Dortmund. So we've got a really tough stretch coming up that's going to push the um, a pretty thin roster to its limit. And, you know, like I said, Kane and Ali and Eriksson are still going to score goals, but the central midfield's my big, my big, oh, and left back. We only have one left back on the team, one, and like he's just, we're playing him into the ground. So, I mean, it's interesting because the, so in in terms of results at the weekend for England, not a ton of, you know, big news at the top, other than I think Liverpool drawing at new, uh, drawing at Newcastle, not a great match for Liverpool. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're Liverpool's a mess right now. Um, and uh, United beating up on Crystal Palace. I mean, no, Crystal Palace is a much worse mess right now. Yeah, Crystal Palace has not scored, as far as I understand. Yeah, they've not, they not scored a goal. It's the longest. I think it's the longest drought without scoring a goal in the first division history. Um, it's not like it's Yikes. something like that. It's fucking crazy. Yikes. And the thing is, they've got they've got like okay players. They should be kind of a mid table team. Um, they just can't fucking do it. It's bizarre. And uh, Spurs beating up on Huddersfield. So I mean, like whatever. That's which is a place that has a football team. It is a place that has a football team that I actually had never heard of before. Literally right now. Um, they won my, the league three times in the twenties. What do you know? Hey, big deal. That's a big deal. Um, so. I guess we should move on. Obviously, Arsenal won also. So, like, just kind of not a huge, you know, you know, it, it, news weekend aside, aside from the injuries in England. Really quickly, PSG 6, Bordeaux 2. Who cares? Um, you know, PSG is the class of that league, and it's not close. And it's also boring, and I don't want to talk about it anymore because I follow a couple of PSG, like, specific reporters on Twitter, and I find that extremely boring to listen to this Uh Let's see. All right. So um, I wanted to mention this because it's interesting. Uh, yeah, it looks like in Germany, Bayern. So Bayern is not having a good start to the season, even you know, putting aside their disastrous Champions League match against PSG. They're firing Ancelotti. It looks like they're going to bring back Jupp uh, Hankus. <laughs> I, I've never known how to pronounce well, his name. Well done. Is that a good – is that that I, well pronounced? I, I have no idea. Yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, he Sounded is, like a good effort. He is exactly who I would have done um, if I couldn't get a better, like a, a really world class coach right now. And I bet, you know, I, I guess that's how they're feeling. Like they couldn't go get, I don't know, some like Tuchel or, uh, or the dude who's um, at uh, Dortmund right now, whatever his name is, the a guy at Red Bull, whatever. I, I'm not really up on these coaching. I, I think that Hank is a great is Hank is a great 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 decision for Bayern. Actually, he's a guy who knows the institutional culture, knows a lot of these players, and has been successful with them before. You know, I was hoping Evan that they would. I mean, like I was trying. A number of like soccer journalists were trying to get uh, the bring back Klinsman. That's what I was about to say. We're all going for it. We all wanted it. Like (laughs) I know, I was about about to say. I was, I was just imagining Klinsman like waiting by his phone, like fucking give me a call and and no Klinsman. (laughs) Like Like, I, that's what I've been thinking. Like I don't, I'm, I'm probably worse than you, Gabe, and not being really up in the, you know, the the managerial farm teams, um, and like who's next in line to be the next big managers, but. Like yeah, Klinsman. That that's the only name I had in mind was fucking called Klinsman. But other than so, that, I don't so know. Fucking funny if they did too. Like, I, that's like, that's why. Only for comedic value is why I cared about them calling Klinsman. There's no way they were going to because he sucks. But like, <laughs> I mean, no, like right. he does. Like, but like it was also extremely funny. But the names I also heard were Luis Enrique, who you know he was good at Roma and 
obviously won the treble at Barca, but like he won the treble with Lionel Messi and Neymar and Luis, you know, Luis Suarez. So like, yeah, it's a big deal, but it's not, you know, that great. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, and, and then the, there were other German coaches whose names were floated. They chose Hankus and that's a, I think that's a good choice. Um, all right. So we're going to quickly mention Italy, but actually we're going to talk about Italy in our uh, interview with James later that we've already recorded, but I know, so I know what we're going to talk about. We talked about Italy um, just quickly. The reason that we're talking about Milan being such a catastrophe is that they obviously lost to Roma over the weekend to nothing. It was a game where Milan just got absolutely beat up. Juve drew Atalanta 2-2. And it does look like Napoli actually has a, could make a run of this if Juve doesn't pull their shit together. Um, So yeah, Italy is actually a much more interesting league this year, Uh, which leaves us, Evan, with Spain. And the reason I left Spain for the end was because the, the, the results were not interesting. But the way that the results happened require a little bit more of a conversation. And that's because yeah. obviously Real Madrid won, no big deal. Like that was not the result I wanted to talk about. East go two goals, very good, no big deal. Um, you know, obviously Bale, there may be an injury question, but the injury that is hamstring again. Yeah, but the thing here's so it wasn't, it was in his calf. And apparently, um, so Spanish press was very quick to report that he would be out for a month. Shocking. Because they are desperate for him to be driven out of Real Madrid. Um, but actually, Real Madrid said that there was no tear. It's just swelling in his calf. And, you know, recently a doctor was reported by us to say, actually, it's only going to be 10 to 14 days, which is like a very short injury period. And he may only miss a couple games. So whatever. Real Madrid's not the story of him because no, not Bar- at all. Barcelona <laughs> beat up. Uh, beat up Las Palmas over the weekend at the Camp Nou, at the empty Camp Nou. And the decision to play the match in front of no spectators and still play is a fucking fascinating decision. It was crazy. It was extremely weird to watch that match. You could listen to the players speak with each other. But even more than that, the, the, the knowledge that what was going on in the background of that match, right? Which was the referendum. It was the day of the referendum was really overwhelming. And it was fascinating to watch. And the very fact that they played is actually a political statement because a lot you know, of the Catalan players in Barcelona didn't want to play, but there was a vote by the team and they said, we're going to go ahead and play. And I think it's partially because of, and the Liga said that they would forfeit if they didn't play. So they would forfeit and take a three-point deduction, is my understanding. So they wouldn't just lose the three points for that match, but they would also get a further points deduction on top of that. Which is an interesting... I mean, obviously, La Liga is being political here too, right? But it's it's the kind of thing that uh, I think Piquet and a couple of the other players were reported to have still not wanted to play regardless... Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think PK was definitely like the vanguard of that and um, then and has kind of basically said he didn't want to play the match. I think Pep said he wouldn't have played the match. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a lot of opinions from from different parts of the team. And, you know, I guess you could always put, you know, they could have thought that if you force La Liga's hand, then they wouldn't actually enforce such a draconian um, draconian penalty. But, yeah, it's definitely 
you know, definitely just really difficult decision for everyone involved, given the context of what was going on in the city of Barcelona at the time. And the, you know, given the fact that they knew that their fans were just outside the gates and weren't being allowed in um, because of fears of what might happen in the stands. There were reports that, you know, there were fan groups that are Catalonian nationalists who said they were going to storm the pitch. And, you know, that was why the decision was made, I think, to uh, to close the doors and play an empty stadium. Yeah, it was a fascinating call from, from the Barcelona management, if only because, like, they are such, they, they're a team that is so associated with, this this cause not not necessarily it's interesting right because not necessarily that the team is wants it if anything i think the team would not want independence it'd be very bad for them in in certain circumstances but because like his, culturally and historically barcelona has been one of the sites of um catalan identity right and it's interesting one of the things i mentioned uh evan on the the other show i've recorded today was um that actually Barcelona is not the only Catalan team in the Spanish league. So we talk yeah, about like what happens. Two others, I think. Yeah. So what happens if Catalonia de- declares independence? And then, you know, in, in that scenario, there are a lot of possibilities. And, you know, there are actually two other teams in, in the Liga right now. Girona and Espanol. Espanol is yeah. like a perennial player. And they're, you know, a perennial like European contender, that kind of stuff. They're a good team. Girona just got promoted. But regardless, like... There's a whole Catalan ecosystem of teams that would be basically shut out in what if there were a scenario where Catalan teams were banned from playing in Spain. It's a fascinating situation. We're gonna talk, we discuss it a little bit in our interview, but I think that it's worth just mentioning quickly that I think Evan that it accelerates the possibility or the progression towards a potential European Super League if if I, their independence is strictly enforced against the Catalan sides. Yeah, I mean, that sort of makes sense to me, right? Because so that, you know, the the concept of Liga without half of the duopoly of La Liga is pretty absurd. Like there, there would be no competition anymore in the Spanish league. It's just Madrid would pretty well dominate that league, I think. Um, it would be, and and so that it would look a lot that, more like France, basically. Right, it would look a hell of a lot more like France. I think that's that's a really good comparison. And... Um, and just financially, the clubs would then have an interest of finding some kind of solution, but the political parties involved are not necessarily in Spain, especially going to want to come to a conclude, you know, come to some kind of settlement where Barca can just play in La Liga, even though they're not in Spain anymore. And I think that's where you're right that then the, the next avenue, cause that I think is the, would be the preferred solution. For yeah. Them. And I think it's still the most likely solution, yeah. even if Catalonia goes independent. But if you can't do that, then I think the next thing is you call Bayern and you call PSG and you call the Manchester teams and a couple London teams. And you're like, let's get 15 or 20 teams together right. and just fake and fucking make the Super League. Yeah. And it's it's the kind of thing that everyone, you know, a lot of the people who like football in Europe have been dreading, but it's also the kind of thing that everyone kind of expects to happen in the next 25 years, just because of the simply because of the money that's involved. And, you know, it's a way that, you know, I, I, you know, I get it. I get the idea of the super league. I've said it before. I get it. I just, I think that you can stall it. I think the newest FFP regulations were trying to stall it like that kind of stuff. But you know, if that's the way it goes, that's the way it goes. I, I, I agree really strongly, Evan, that the 
the political stuff in Spain is actually may be the biggest stumbling block because the corporate interests of both. And, and I also think that like the management of Real Madrid and Barcelona will both really want to do it. But I also think that it's very possible that like the, the hardliners in La Liga will say like, well, look, we just don't want to have this league without, you know, I think there are regulations even that say we can't have this league without Spanish, like with any non-Spanish teams. And even though there's a precedent, right? Because in, in the France, French league, obviously Monaco is not, Right, right. Monica is not in France. And, and so, there's, look, there's a political there is a political solution to this where you, you know, you can come to some kind of settlement. It's just it's that's going to be decided in the context of things that are a lot bigger than just football. Right. Exactly. And the things that are bigger than football are very real right now. And, and this is a situation that I think for both sides is is not one where anyone's thinking about the football or at least not anyone who you know has any political powers really thinking about the football i think that actually the average like catalan or or you know person might actually you know say actually i I was thinking about the football a little bit right uh yeah this is a real it's a real political thing and i it's interesting because i actually haven't have no ability to forecast this i i've, I've worked I, on stopping forecasting politically but i also have no conception of how this ends no so i mean like i've said a million times not on this podcast but to you that donald trump is a thing and i don't fucking know what anything right. is anymore um, <laughs> I don't get like i spent i spent two years saying that that wasn't going to happen and then here we are right but um <laughs> you know for better you know for better or for worse whatever not making a value judgment it's just i i did not expect that right. let's put it that way um, and I, I, I was talking with, you know, with just a friend about, about, you know, the possibilities in Catalonia, just beyond, you know, not about the sports possibilities, but just the political possibilities. And I, I agree with you it is completely open-ended. I, it's not clear what the next moves for either side is right now. I think they don't quite know what to do just yet. Um, so, you know, it's fascinating. It's going to have ramif- it will have ramifications on football um, down the line, like, there's no doubt that things are going to, I think something's going to change and football is going to have to adjust to it, but just how that's going to end up is unclear to me. If it ends up in a European super league, I don't really love the idea. I never have, but I think that the key to it is if you get some kind of European super league, not having it be like a set in stone closed system is pretty important. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't really know. I mean, maybe we should just do a whole episode on this actually. And we'll bring like Ernesto back and just talk about it. Like, because I'm interested in getting someone who's not just us on yeah. in this conversation. Cause I just have no conception. Like, would there be promotion relegation? Like all that shit, all of this again, all the MLS shit. And so with that in mind, I wanted to bring up my favorite, Moving on, because we're going to do our quick, very quick international preview, because we only have one real story in the international break to talk about, which is, will the United States men's national team qualify for the World Cup? Uh, And before that, I wanted to bring up my favorite story in MLS, which is now that the playoffs have been set, Evan, we've had one of my favorite things ever has happened, which is at the Atlanta-Minnesota United match, a dude whipped a bottle at the referee. They're all they're all grown up. They all grown up. They grew they're up. all grown up now. That is like old school soccer's here. Soccer hooliganism. I'm totally here for it. That's awesome. I'm not Soccer. look, obviously don't fucking whip things at referees, right? We we don't do that, but also like 
people do that in sports that they really care about. Yeah, and love the passion. Love, love the passion. passion. I mean, so, so I mean, some of my famous favorite moments in sports have to do with beer bottles ending up on on uh, playing fields. So I remember there wasn't it like the Cleveland Browns. I think had this incident where for one reason or another there was like they were really upset and they just fucking showered the football field in beer bottles. Yeah. Uh, this is a thing I remember from a few years back and I absolutely just loved it. No, I'm like I'm totally here for the passion, love it. I mean like you know the, the I mean one of my you know earlier recollections of Real Madrid Barcelona is when the Barcelona fans started whipping shit at Luis Figo when he went to take a corner kick. And like, that's really famous. Like they threw a pig's head at him. That's awesome. <laughs> that obviously fantastic. also like, don't whip shit at people on the no, pitch. Don't but, like, do it. Don't I can do it, love like, something and you shouldn't do it at the same time. Exactly. And that's like the crucial thing. Like we're, I totally love that Atlanta, like just makes me love Atlanta more. Like I'm really into this club. Like I'm really into your fans. You're awesome. I'm so so into them. I'm 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 rooting for them in the playoffs. Like, but also like fucking don't throw things at referees, dude. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> like that. Yeah, I get it. Like, I get why you want to, but just don't. So speaking of things that make me want to throw beer bottles at people on playing fields, there's the U.S. Men's National Team. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. Um, and we, we just do a couple minutes on us men's national team because, um, they're going through a do or die period where they're playing a bunch of teams that they really should beat. Uh, and if they perform even slightly less well than expected, they'll still qualify. Right. But yeah, they, they do need to get a couple of results. I think that the next match is against Panama on Friday. And uh, in the United States, and then the one after that is at Trinidad and Tobago. And the basic, my understanding is this: if U.S. beats Panama in the United States, is the way they're favored to right now, then they only really need a draw against Trinidad in Trinidad. Yeah. So the way it's shaping up right now, I think that's ba- that pretty well states it. Like the crucial thing is to beat Panama this Friday. Like they just if they if they don't if they if they don't do that, then it's you know it's not so much in their hands anymore. Um, they're not like in drastic danger of not qualifying. They, I, th- I think the most likely downside is that they just hit the fourth spot and have to play, do a playoff. Um, I, the, the number of scenarios where Honduras passes the U S, uh, aren't at quite as high just cause Honduras has a lot, a lot of work to do in goal difference. Um, and I think that that might end up being a crucial benefit for the u.s when it comes down to it having a eight goal leading goal difference like that that difference isn't going away um so yeah i mean look they need to they just just fucking win the games they just they should win both the games they absolutely should beat trinidad and tobago so we should be able to count that as three points in the bag um and you know panama isn't a terrible team but it's the 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 u.s is competing on the level that they think they're on, then it should, it should be a not, not a question whether they're beating Panama or not. Uh, I agree. I, I mean, if they play up to any, and if they, so here's, I think on top of all of this, right, is the crucial thing is that they need to play with some level of passion, which they, they have not exhibited previously. Right. Like, and or at least in the the last few games, and they need to come into these matches with the understanding that this is a match you need to actually lean in on, <laughs> so, so to speak. I mean, yeah. So like, 
I, I mean, I don't know what else to say. Like, if they can't get up for these matches, that you know, their world, they get. There's no margin for error here. Like, despite what I said about, you know, they could s- kind of back their way in in the fourth spot. They could also just as easily just shit away the World Cup, and they have to fucking know that. You know, when they were playing the last set of international matches, those were important results. And but there was still these last two matches. It was, you know, everyone kind of knew there would be this last chance to pull it off. There's, there's not anything else past this. It, it's, I mean, it sounds obvious, but they have to know that. They have to know there's two more matches, and then it's that's it. That's it. You, you either, you either get your results here, or you don't have to care about what you're doing next summer. I I just don't have much more to add. I mean, the fact is that if you can't get this kind of result against fucking Trinidad, then you don't deserve to and like you don't deserve to be in the World Cup. And like And it's not it's not and it's not Christian Pulisic's job to fucking do it either. Not by like, himself, no. Not God. by himself. He's one player, one 19-year-old player, and I think to a certain extent they've been relying on him or the American fan base has been relying on him. Like he's a fucking teenager. He's good. But he can't do this by himself. Like the players the, who who are who have been doing this for a decade now need to fucking play up to what theoretically is their ability. Yeah. No, I I, I agree. I um. I I don't know. I don't know how much else I I want to get into it. Just because like fundamentally, like these are two matches that not only should the like United States should win convincingly against both of these sides, and if they can't they may still fluke their like not fluke, but they may still like fall their way into the year, stumble their way into the world cup. But that's really what they'd be doing. Right. And like, that's, that's it. Like, it's not that complicated. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that the Panama game is likely to be our, our game of the week um, next for week. next week. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll have a chance to talk about, you know, what they do right or what they get wrong. And um, I just know that, you know, we need to see more of that U.S. national team that was here the first couple weeks, right. the first couple matches when Bruce Arena took over. And, I mean, they cannot look like what they looked like during the last set of matches against uh, Honduras and Costa Rica. Like, that was just—it was unacceptable tactics. It was unacceptable effort. Um, it was just bad all around. And yep. if they do that, then they won't go to—then they, they're not going to Russia. Uh Moving on, and last thing, we've got our bad takes of the week. Before I wanted to mention, um, there is one other glimmer of hope, Evan. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, U.S. Uh, under-17 men's player Timothy Weah, W-E-A-H. He's the son of George, same last name, who I, I, I've been looking at to pronounce that name. I'm sorry, everyone, if I can't do it. I know he's Liberian. Uh, or originally, but Timothy is an American player who is at PSG right now. And um, he was on the Guardian's top 60 world prospects. So, well, that's pretty cool. So even if uh, U.S. doesn't do great right now, the combination of him and Pulisic um, is actually a really good, uh, you know, future forward looking, you know, arrangement for 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 USA. So that's pretty cool. Um, All right. Bad takes. So, Evan, uh, my understanding is that your bad take this week is coming out of Russia. As so many bad takes do. (laughs) Um, So uh, this bad take. So this is not the original article that I saw from for like the the original news source that I saw for this bad take. But this is the one I'm going to use because I think it's the one that does it the best. So this is coming out of Russia. And so what better source than just Mm. to use the RT.com? Absolutely. uh, 
uh, reporting, which is always fine reporting, mm. very critical, especially when the Russian government is involved, and even in particular when Vladimir, Vladimir Putin is involved. Really fact-based reporting more than anything. So for some reason, Vladimir Putin uh, was at some kind of press conference with the manager of Zenit, uh, Zenit St. Petersburg. Yeah. Um, and so the manager of Zenit was talking about something or other when when Putin decided to interject. And uh, RT reports it uh, reports it this way. Um, he first they note that then uh, they, they note that he that the, the Zenit manager was in, quote interrupted by a sharp comment from Putin, who turned out to be an up to date uh, up to date on football affairs. <laughs> And here's oh what Putin said to be interrupted. Quote, well done, Sergey. You've got eight foreigners running around the pitch for Zenit in the oh Europa League. God. And two Russian citizens and the goalkeeper. That's three. It's very interesting what you've told us. Uh, bringing, bringing uh, and this is commentary from, from RT, bringing the Zenit balls firmly back down to earth. Jesus Christ. I love this fucking, like, absolutely classic fucking government propaganda. Just, like... Yeah, and he just, he fucking, it's like, if you read, like, any, uh, like, obviously partisan news media, it's like, check out this guy who just owns the liberal argument about why. Like, it's the same thing. Like, Putin, watches Vladimir Putin totally dominates the Zenit St. Petersburg, uh, you know, dude. And, like, here's the thing. The guy didn't get dominated, right? He's playing in the Europa League. His, his team is doing well. But what ended up happening was the they guy was fucking so fucking... Won. They fucking won the match that he's complaining about right now. The guy was so fucking terrified of Vladimir Putin that he shut down as soon as the dude spoke to him. It's like, like, hey, like, oh, yeah, that's so great that you have so many Russians on your team. Isn't that great? Like, maybe maybe you should have more Russians than that. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, of course, we're going to go get some more Russians right now. I promise we're going to... And, like... I, I wouldn't be that surprised if in the next match, like, he fields 11 Russians. <laughs> yeah, no, so, he, yeah, he says, look, we, so, I guess, the so, the uh, the Russian Domestic League requires, I think, s no more than six foreigners on the pitch, so requires um, the balance of the team to be, uh, to be Russian, and he, uh, he pointed out that they observe the formula more often than not, but this was just a special situation with the Europa League oh match. It's. It's, it's, so that's that's what he says, um, and he says that we will observe the limit. We we observe the limit almost every game. The match with the Spanish was the only one where we fielded more foreigners, but we're oh really preparing players for the World Cup, Russian players, and it'll bring results. You'll see. That's amazing. That's literally like manager and like owner talk for like don't send my family to fucking fucking. Uh, uh, Siberia, please. Right. Though I guess in you know in Russian terms, the kleptocracy, it's more like don't bring trumped up corruption charges against me and take all of my money and put me in jail right. uh, somewhere. Right. That's true. I mean, but you always get the sense that with Putin, it was like he he always you get the sense that he feels like it. He would have been much better served being born like a couple decades earlier with a huge fucking walrus mustache. Like, oh like... yeah, look, no, look, he's only not he's only not Khrushchev because like the media is just a little bit too uh, too just open a, just for him to be Khrushchev. <laughs> so anyway, the, uh, the, the, it finishes off with Putin interrupting uh, his monologue to say, "Moreover, football will become a truly Russian game, and God help us all. FIFA That's is trying. FIFA is trying terrifying. their game. That's fucking terrifying." Uh, 
So my bad take is also from Russia. It ha- it's not so much a bad take as it is an impending humanitarian disaster. Um, so my bad, my bad take is the Russians calling the like stands that they've built um, for their Ekaterinburg Stadium uh, stands, and when they're really just basically. Uh, a fucking death trap. I can't describe enough. Like it's basically, I'm just, it's a picture that I'm looking at right now, and and we'll we'll have it be the art for this. But it, it's it's one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen. So basically, the Russian stadium at Ekaterinburg is basically looks like it's three fourths completed, and the fourth side of this dome, like circular stadium, is just fucking grandstands uh, erected like in a day like you would see at a fucking high school football game except for they look more rickety and they go up thousand feet in the air they all all the way to the top of the stadium all the way back it is terrifying that you see these you know images from the top of the grandstands the top of these these seats actually is at the same height as the top of the dome and the dome is blocking their view of the pitch. It, yeah, they can't. Yeah, there's no way. And there's actually another photo where you can see the, uh, you know, the view from the top seats. You basically have an obstructed view of the far goal. Um, so you can ma- and the, the near goal is so far away that you can barely see anything. I, I think the best way to describe it is so it's like a 300 foot ski jump and then they put seats on it. Mm hmm. That's exactly um, how I describe it. it. Like, if there weren't seats, then you would fucking slide down like a goddamn toboggan. Yeah. And the the really terrifying thing is that it's clearly made on these rickety-ass, like, metal poles that are clearly made to be dismantled in a day. I think they put this up in a matter of days. And that's terrifying when you're considering it's a stand for a thousand-plus people. So I'm, I find this terrifying for two reasons. One is that it's a fucking erector set that a thousand people are going to sit on and jump and, on, right? And, Think and about jump it. This on is football game. and, and like go crazy on and probably die on. So like, that's the first one is that it clearly looks like, I think what we can, we'll just make that picture like the cover art for yeah. this episode and people can see that, uh, the fucking nightmare that, that, uh, Putin is putting together. But that my second problem is. Like you're in a different zip code up on top of those stands. And I'm just imagining being up there with some Russian hooligans. Like I think the fucking Russian mob is going to run that place. Oh, yeah. Like you're just going to get fucked. You're going to get stabbed and no one's going to know it. No one's going to know or they're going to drop you off the back of it. And it's like a (laughs) thousand foot drop and they're going to be throwing you over. Like it's such a good way to kill someone during a football match. Like the, the if you look at the back, it's like a thousand foot drop. The the lowest level of these seats is like a, a like a couple hundred feet above the ground. Every single person would die if they were dropped from where they're sitting. It's it is set up to be the single worst soccer related football related disaster of all time and that's including the scope of what we know about Hillsborough this is worse like if like this is terrifying it, it like the top of this is a thousand feet off the ground easily because it's at the top of the dome think about if you were at a stadium right and you jumped off the top of the stadium think about that you would die right well this is the top 
the, the top row is the same level as the top of the stadium, right? And so even the lowest possible row is still the second deck. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's insanity. And I can't, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it's just crazy. It's just more <laughs> indictment of FIFA giving, you know, World Cups to countries that one, that, that one are clearly unprepared to begin with and two are notorious for graft. And right. are just going to build this for two dollars and then charge a million. Right, and 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 they're and one of the fat fucking things about the Winter Olympics was it cost like ten times more than any other Winter Olympics, despite the fact that everyone knew that all the facilities were exponentially worse than any other Winter Olympics in history, and included fucking cameras in the rooms of the players. Like this is this is exactly what Russia does. This is a classic example of. Uh, of Russia just being being like, look, we're going to steal all of your money. We're going to tell you about it and we're going to still do it. And you're going to pretend like everything's fine. And FIFA is hosting a match at this stadium this summer, right? Like it's, <laughs> this is when the fucking Confederations Cup or the uh, 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 whatever the, the pre-World Cup dry run tournament is, right? They're going to yes, be at this, this fucking stadium. And there's yeah. no indication that they're going to finish this by then. So very well may have these fucking stands been. It's just insane. I, I just like just another, you know, in that long run of uh, absolute disasters perpetrated and, and scams, right? Perpetrated by Russia and the Russian like sports federation against other uh, with the, and with the collaboration of these international sporting bodies. It's unbelievable. And lots of people are going to die. Like it's it, the idea that like people won't die is facetious because at the very least, someone's going to fall off of this. It's not, even if it doesn't collapse, someone will fall off. Well, that's going to be fun. <laughs> All right. So I think that wraps it up for this week. Um, we have our awesome interview with James. This is a bit of a long show because of that. Um, but normally, suck it up. It's good content. Yeah, it's good content. You guys like it. It's, it's, it's cool stuff. Uh, and um, obviously, uh, that that uh, that's where we are. So <laughs> send us uh, any more bad takes that you have uh, moving forward. You know, if you see anything, I know my buddy Josh uh, wanted us to mention that Sunderland sucked. Uh, they do. They do. Um, they are bad. They're bad. That's a, a good take. That Sunderland is bad. Yeah, he is. You know, obviously from. Uh, North England from Newcastle, so uh, a Sunderland fan, yeah, they suck, dude. Sorry, like I don't. I mean, like we obviously we don't talk about championship at all, so <laughs> your team sucks. Um, um, yeah, they're bad, um, and they don't even have the guiding hand of the brilliant Rafa Benitez to bring them back. <laughs> to or you know the really. dynamic DeAndre Yedlin. <laughs> Uh, anyways, all right. So uh, we'll talk next week, man. We'll talk to you. All right, everybody. Uh, welcome to our Managing Madrid listeners. This is uh, the Let's Fix Football podcast. I'm Gabe Lesra, joined by my co-host, Evan Matier. To everyone listening on Let's Fix Football, this is our interview segment. Um, we are joined today to talk about a bunch of interesting stuff uh, by James Rushton. James is the 
uh, editor-in-chief, managing editor of uh, SB Nation's AC Milan blog uh, and SB Nation's Aston Villa blog, 7500 to Holt, uh, which is a blog that I've actually been following almost my whole time on this site. It was actually preceded Managing Madrid. Um, definitely uh, very high-quality writing, good, good analysis. So, James, we're bringing you on partially to talk about a really awesome article that you wrote on uh, – on the Aston Villa site uh, about sports and politics. And this is a very important day to talk about that because it's obviously October 1st, which is the referendum in Catalonia. So we're going to get into that a little bit. Before that, we wanted to talk a little bit about your other passion, which is AC Milan. So our understanding and and the way that this season in Italy has played out has been quite unpleasant for, you know, AC Milan fans, I'd imagine, but also generally for anyone who kind of predicted Milan to be, you know, the kind of powerhouse in Italy that everyone expected after what was, to be quite frank, a quite an intense and, and, and high spending summer. Yeah, I mean, it goes to prove that we can't really judge anything off transfers, can we? Uh, people were saying we'd finish first, second, third, fourth, and I don't see us finishing fifth. At the moment, it seemed it's really scary to be honest. Uh, with all the stuff happening, you know, behind the scenes at the club, let alone the results on the pitch. I mean, we're picking up some here and there against, you know, Crotone, all those kind of clubs down the bottom, Cagliari. But when you're losing to Sampdoria, Lazio, Roma, uh, you've got problems. Right, you really do because those are the teams that you're going to finish above you. You can't finish above them if they're constantly. You know, kicking your ass. Right. It's been a turbulent couple of years for Milan, right? So, like, only it was almost only what a year and a half, two years ago that um, Berlusconi finally, you know, relinquished his control of the team, which I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of people were very, very. I personally was very, very excited to see because uh, it was really stifling it, and he's such a piece of shit that like it's great to have him not be associated with this historically fantastic club. But ever since then, the own, the process of transferring ownership to this new kind of uh, conglomeration has been kind of a clusterfuck. Yeah, that's one way to put it, man. Um, seriously. <laughs> uh, it could be illegal. Like I, I wouldn't want to go out there and hedge all my bets on it, but this guy who owns Milan, Yong Hong Lee, you know, there were forged bank statements in the past, you know, regarding the takeover, they didn't find money on two occasions to hmm. buy the club. Only when Elliot stepped in, and you'll know Elliot from a bunch of news stories, I'm sure, uh, the Vulture Fund, they stepped in and uh, they will take control of Milan if Lee can't meet his debts. And unless Milan qualify for Champions League football and rake in the sponsorship deals and the TV money, they're not going to meet that debt. Um, and then that vulture fund will be in charge of Milan, worrying yeah. on the pitch and off the pitch. So I just wanted to quickly mention Elliot uh, is the vulture fund that people probably know from one of the funniest, uh, like kind of legal unfolding stories uh, in in world history, like <laughs> recent uh, political history. Which is so Elliot bought a bunch of bad Argentine debt in the eighties and nineties when you know they were getting it at this very very you know high rate because Argentina couldn't you know was you know, unlikely to pay back their, their bonds so that they, so they had to high, you know, lend or, you know, they, they bought at these very high interest rates. And so, of course, Argentina wasn't able to pay back. And so they defaulted on this debt. Uh, a lot of the other, you know, uh, uh, lenders to Argentina, a lot of the other bondholders took buyouts. Elliot refused and insisted that Argentina pay them back a 100%. Argentina refused. And so what Elliot did was seized 
uh, Argentina is a Argentine warship that was stationed in the port of New York and led to one of the funniest trials and and court battles, Evan, uh, in I think in, in the last 20 years. Yeah, no, it's. It's, it's fantastic. And didn't it went all the way to the, like, didn't it go to the Supreme Court or something? I can't remember if that was the case the, that did. The Second Circuit, at least. Second Circuit, yeah. But anyway, like, they had to decide whether or not they had a right to this warship. And ultimately, <laughs> they decided that they didn't. And so they sent it home. And it was like, you know, it was like the lost standards of Rome coming back to Rome. It was this huge <laughs> celebration. It's a victory over international finance by Argentina. Um, so, yeah, it's all pretty fantastic. It's pretty funny. Except, you know, this, this hedge fund or, or, you know, private equity fund sucks. Right. And that's and that's actually the problem for Milan now is that, you know, if, if, if things continue to go to hell, it's very possible that Elliot could come into a position of being the, you know, main or only owner of this club. And that would be I mean, I can't imagine a worse owner for a football team. I kind of get the image in my head now that there would just be a bunch of suits holding Donnarumma hostage or something like that. Just take him, you know, for <laughs> to a third party. It's, it's fucking no. It's really fucking weird. Yeah, you know, like... I don't. Just, I can't get my head around it. I just don't know. Boy, this is. I don't know how uh, Vulture Fund makes money out of a football club that's failing to make money. So they they're just going to strip it, I guess. But I hope they invest. I mean, that's a really stupid hope considering their past. Right, but um, yeah, it looks more likely that I just get everyone gone. I'll uh, sell them to the highest bidder or lowest bidder, any which bidder. Is, which is also stupid, right? Because on some level, if P, if the other like, this is a market where like anyone will jump on a club that's doing a fire sale, but they're not going to give fire sale pr- like they're going to get fire sale prices. So like instead of like you know quietly and, and calmly building up the team, investing it with more, they, if they try to do a fire sale, like oh everyone has to go, like we're stripping this for parts, like. Donnarumma, instead of getting sold for like, you know, 150, look at the market right now, like 150 million for this, like, absolutely world class goalkeeper who you could play on your team for the next 15 years. Like, instead of selling him for what he actually would be valued at, they'd have to sell him for like 50 million because everyone knows that they're, you're trying to sell this, like, to strip this club for parts. And like, it's, it's, it could not be a worse economic situation for Milan, uh, which is really a catastrophe because, like, the Italian league, while it's a very fun league to watch, I personally really enjoy it. It's it actually kind of misses having this other kind of counterbalanced historical power to what has been a absolutely dominant run from Juventus. Yeah, I mean, you've got Napoli coming through, and they've really impressed me both in the domestic Italian league and in European competition. Inter are kind of coming back up there as as well now, and we've got Lazio, Roma. And uh, Juventus, of course, but so but without Milan, Milan are locked out of that club at the moment. Um, right. So yeah, Italian football still going strong. Don't get me wrong. We'll see some newcomers on the scene as well, maybe. Um, maybe Bologna, Atalanta come through into that European picture. But but uh, Milan are going to be locked out of that unless they get their uh, their, their stalling order. Yeah, they're, they're uh, shit. It's terrible. Uh, and it's funny because yes. like I was so optimistic about Milan coming back and being like this absolute power. Uh, after the after Berlusconi got out, I was like, how could you find a worse owner than the fucking like sex addict, syphilitic maniac president, right? But no, like instead they fucking like went out and found like this vulture hedge fund and this fucking like criminal, you know, south the you know, Southeast Asian like 
dude to like pretend that he has a lot of money, but in reality, like forge a bunch of bank statements to end up giving the fucking club to the fucking hedge fund that defrauded the Argentine government. Like Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, like, I don't think Lee's a bad guy. Don't get me wrong. I don't think he's like Berlusconi bad. He seems pretty cool, <laughs> dude, to be honest. That's but, a uh, low bar. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just a chance that it could fall to Elliot. You know, I just, I, you know, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Hands uh, up in the air. I, don't know. <laughs> well, what's I mean, what are the chances that Elliot actually like wants to own a football club? Like, I wonder if they would just move on pretty quickly. Yeah. They yeah. I don't do... think there's any chances there. There's none. They'd they want just, to sell like, it. They'd to... money. That's a good point. Maybe the first thing they do is just be like, hey, like Saudi billionaire guy, like, you know, you want to yeah. own this club. Like, yeah. Like maybe they spend one window selling off some veterans and then they just they just move on from it. Yeah. yeah it's like one of those one dollar houses when the Detroit market crashed that like, <laughs> yeah. you could buy. But if a homeless man wandered in and died in it, he sued for millions. So, yeah, it's like that. <laughs> Uh, so let's, um, <laughs> that's a good analogy. Uh, I'm gonna, let's, let's transition. So, uh, obviously, uh, what, you know, kind of sparked all of this, uh, it, this, this, um, decision to bring you on, like chat about this stuff is that over the last couple of weeks, we have seen kind of a explosion of political figures, especially in the United States, kind of taking shots at sports leagues and sports players, um, and what that has led to has been like these absolute flood of journalists and stuff talking about how like, you know, protest and some political issues and, you know, you know uh, sports athletes talking about political issues, owners talking about it too. And, you know, these are important things to discuss. This has also released an absolute flood of obnoxious douchebags telling all of these people to not talk about politics because they are only sports players. So what you did, James, is you wrote a really interesting article. I'm just going to read from it. Um, and, and the basic thesis is that sports and politics are really inseparable. Uh, because really, when we talk about sports, what we're talking about is a way of viewing the world that is very much related to the way politics you know, frames and, and creates our views. And the reason we like sports on some level is the same reasons that we like politics. So let's, let's quickly read from this. Um, so in the manner that people use the sports leagues and teams of the world to reflect their views, in the manner that superstars are their, are their belief plat, uh, beliefs via platform, air their beliefs via platforms, we cannot take any kind of politics out of sport or we cannot stop any kind of politician from saying stupid things because to take politics out of sports bleeds the narrative and it kills the belief we have in our heroes to be greater than human. Could we imagine Muhammad Ali with his mouth sewn shut or that, uh, or that all the Irish kids turn their back on James McLean because he turns his back on his community in favor of a politically neutral environment? Could we face Jesse Owens toning down his ability to, uh, to allow the Nazi athletes to win so that he may save face? Or what about the Black Panthers on the podium on that fateful summer night? Do they no longer hold their fists up in defiance of solidarity? This, I think, is absolutely crucial, right? I, I, so, um, and, and especially given what's going on today in Catalonia, where there's been a kind of history of, in Spain, uh, soccer teams being political entities. And I think that's something that our American listeners would be very interested to know about. So, why, James, why don't you chat, like, explain a little bit what your, uh, kind of what your thesis is here and um you know where 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 we where we uh, see this going well because politics and sports kind of exploded at the same time especially in europe 
I mean, politics has been around for millennia, but we saw loads of stuff come in. You know, we saw Franco go out with Catalonia back in the day. We saw um, the working class revolts in England. We saw people take sides on either side, and we saw clubs being formed in their name. You know, you've got Livorno, for example, in Italy, who were in Serie A once upon a time, but they've got a massive communist following. You know, you've got Barcelona who have a Catalonian identity. You've got Real Madrid, who uh, unfortunately have sympathies with Franco in the past. You've got, you've got sports and cl- sports are clubs and politics are clubs. Everything is kind of bound into that. Um, we have segregation in the stands with people chanting this and that at each other. And it's based on history. Some of the chants you'll see across Europe are based on history and stuff that's happened in the past. You know, you've got the, the England squad, not the England squad, the England fans chanting about the. World War One and World War Two, for example, all the events that have happened in our life have built up and led to a moment, well, moments where we we are we are what has happened. You know, we can't be anything in the future because it's yet to happen. We are all the capital that we've built up in our politics, and we all take that to every Saturday, every Sunday. And we voice that in games. I mean, you can't really see that in the NFL, can you? Because the teams are more. They're more. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's not like the history is not there. It's just. It hasn't been around. Sanitized. Feels yes, sanitized yeah. and corporatized. But that doesn't yeah. mean, well, right. And it's not It's not that politics hasn't manifested itself in, in U.S. sports, right? It's just done it in different ways. So in yeah, you know, exactly. European clubs, the tribalism has been, you know, you know, so I'm a Tottenham Hotspur fan, right? And they're, you know, kind of taken the nickname the Yids, but that's because they were assaulted by anti-Semites. And that was the kind of tribalism that was manifesting in North London at that time. And so that's how it manifests there. In the U.S., politics manifested in segregation of sports leagues and, and other ways that are, you know, also unfortunate, also still, you know, affect how the sports landscape is in the U.S. Right. And and one of the things that I, I think was really interesting to talk about is also how we define like what 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 is politics, right? Because in, you know, in, in, in Europe, it seems very common for not just for you know, athletes, but also just for the clubs themselves. I mean, so in you know, what I what I mean by that, like in, in the United States, you would never have a club take a position on uh, the like a referendum for independence, like the way that Barcelona has in Catalonia, right? They today uh, played their match against Las Palmas uh, with no fans in the stadium because they were worried uh, about incidents, but also because, you know, I think there's a part of, you know, that's certainly part of the club that is interested in having all of their fans out there to vote and, and participate in the election. As they've said, I mean, Gerard Piquet came on, you know, uh, on TV and and talked about the kind of uh, abuses that the police were were going you know executing on some of the citizens who are trying to vote uh, and and really was pushing for everyone to vote. Pep Guardiola in England um, said that he'd already voted that he yeah the and the in in Spain right now the very act of voting itself is a political act because the Spanish government has said that this referendum is actually unconstitutional and that's what the police right, are and, there for. And- and the crucial point on that, right, so the club has taken an overtly political stance by saying it thinks the vote should go forward and that it thinks that even though it hasn't taken a stance of which way its fans should vote officially, it has taken the stance that the vote should happen. Well, that's a political issue because there's a political disagreement about whether this vote is legal and whether or not it should be allowed to happen. So, it, you know, it's it's the most starkly mixture of politics and sports you could possibly have, at least in, like institutionally. Which is interesting, though, right, because in the United States and James, I, I wonder whether like this is something that... That, you know, you, uh, you know, being not an American, see, but like, and you're also an NFL fan, right? So like, 
I know you're a Browns fan, so you <laughs> it's like but it's a little bit of a bummer. But my my fiance is as well. Uh, but you know, in all these games, like the first game, one of the first games of the season, you know, the Browns rushed out onto the field arm in arm with the police. Like there are a lot of these kind of political statements that in the United States that the teams make. That I think that part of the issue is that Americans don't really see them as political. So for example, like the whole idea that the players would come out and stand for the anthem didn't actually wasn't actually enforced or really thought about until around 2009 when the military actually bought uh, time on the <laughs> from the NFL to create a rule where they would bring out a flag and everyone would play the anthem and so these kind of displays of patriotism themselves are political acts right like this isn't an apolitical thing yeah, I mean, like going back to Barcelona, we have politics as the foundation of a sports club. I mean, for my Cleveland Browns, I don't think you can see politics in the foundation of it, but more in the evolution of it, Yeah, as in what will it become? Um, the kneeling and the arms locked is interesting as well, because we saw Kaepernick kneel for the Black Lives Matters movement, I believe, um, yeah. whereas now we see the protests more in defiance at Donald Trump, which is it's a completely different tangent. You see the owners joining in, which is quite weird. I mean, I like it. I like that. And anyone voicing uh, concerns <laughs> against um, an authority figure. Um, but if it's Jerry Jones, then I think twice. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the whole situation's kind of, with politics and sport, it's kind of weird because, I mean, American history is it's wide and varied, but we have European history as well. That goes back, you know, so long, so many conflicts, so many disputes, so many arguments. And American history, you've kind of it's exploded in 300 years. You've got almost a thousand years of history, so there's there's just so much going on. It's a the the word mixing pot is a it's a kind of term that not many people kind of like, but I think that's the only way you can describe it. It's so many people from so many different cultures, from so many different backgrounds, backing so many different political parties. Whether it's Democrats, you know, the Libertarian Party, or even if it's the DSA stuff like that, you've got right. people who are just attaching all flags to all different kinds of banners, and it's really exploding at the moment. Whereas in Europe, we've kind of had our flags pinned to our thing for a while. You, you know, Barcelona have said more than a club stitched on the back of their shirts for that Catalonian identity. And, you know, right. Sorry. It's just, it's hard to pin down what I really mean when I wrote that article, because it was Aston Villa's CEO who came out and said, politics shouldn't be a part of sport. And I mean, I get where he comes from because people sit down on the Sunday with their direct TV, their passes, their NFL <laughs> game passes, NBC. They've had a tough week at work. They've had shit chatted them out all week, whether it's their wife, boss, whether it's something they hate that's just thrown in on them. A sports is an escape. So whatever's been frustrating them in life, they sit down and they want to get away from it. Then they see all stuff they disagree right. with. Whether it's right or wrong, they see stuff they disagree with, and then it's just they've got no escape anymore. So, yeah, I see where people are coming from. It, I don't agree with it. I, I think politics is a part. You can't escape from it. Right. You know, it is, it's life. You know, sports is a reflection of life. Politics is a reflection of life. can't escape from it. And yeah. to try, if you try, if, if a sports league tries to shut out politics, right, if it just tried to be neutral, like neutrality is a position. Um, not saying anything about a social issue is taking a position about how important that social issue is. And so, you know, even if, uh, you know, the, the NFL was to ban all, you know, you know, just take everything out of at this point, take, you know, take the anthem out, ban people from, you know, don't have the teams on the field, something right ever to try to 
um, anesthetize it, yeah, it would still be taking a political statement. There would still be a stand there. Yeah, one of the things that Evan and I, you know, we, we were in law school together, we learned from, you know, one of our teachers, one of his big things that he liked to say was there isn't a neutral place to, you know, retreat that's not political. So one of the, it's when, when they say stuff like this, it, it feels to me like, you know, you can, I think what they really mean. And so is, is to, because on some level, everything is political, right? Just like you were made this point that you're making. And I'm trying to, I've been trying to think hard about why people don't have, like people have such a problem with that, especially in, in America. And like, obviously it has something to do with like turning your brain off and just watching the sports. Right. But it's also has to do probably with the fact that they know that they don't agree with everyone and each other on this stuff. So these conversations and these, these, things that they're thinking they know are kind of unpleasant because really what they want to do is to not fight with people uh, while they're watching their sport or at least like be on the same team. Right. But when they have their own players who they know that they don't agree with, it's hard to, it's harder to root for them. Like look at all the people that are burning the jerseys, right. Of the, uh, you know, they just go out and they, this is the stupidest shit, right. They burn their season tickets that they already paid for, which is absolutely mental. but like, I think you're right that it, it all comes from a place of anxiety. And I think that change is, you know, even more anxiety inducing than just, you know, leaving things be, though, you know, leaving things be the the ability to just leave things be is a privileged position. And, and so that's, you know, why, you know, trying to avoid the anxiety of talking about political change is itself political. But I, I agree with you that, that that's what most people are, you know, why most people don't want to hear anything about it. Right. Because... It's like being drafted into an army, isn't it? If you're not drafted, you know, you have a p- position of privilege, whereas if you're forced to take a side, you have to, you know, you're done. But if you're, you can stand back in that neutral territory, you've already chosen your side almost, and you have the privilege to be able to pick and choose. Right. It's like that. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, a part of it is that, like, the Americans, right, and I think, you know, to be quite honest, I think it's more complicated in a place like Spain, but Americans especially have this belief that there are some political issues that aren't contentious. And so one of them is standing up for the the national anthem and, and, you know, respecting the flag and all that stuff. And they say that what they mean isn't like literally respecting the flag because these are the same people that are like literally wearing flag pants that they're farting into. Right. That's not what they mean. What they mean is like respecting this kind of abstract idea of, of, you know, the country that they have. And they feel like that is a, should be a non, it's a political act that is non confrontational. And when someone makes it confrontational, that's the political, that is politics, but not, not the non confrontational act of standing up for the flag, putting your hand on your heart and, and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, we saw with Kaepernick as well, he originally sat during these protests. I don't know if anyone actually, many people know about this, but he went to veterans and said what they told him. You know, if you want to respect veterans or people who died fighting for the flag, kneel, show some respect, don't sit. And he started to kneel. So when people are looking at these players and saying they don't care about the troops, they don't care about wars, they don't care about veterans, they do. Because kneeling is a sign, you know, it's a sign of respect, it's bowing. Right. Whereas Kaepernick started sitting and, you know, if he was sitting, I could get the anger. I could kind of understand the anger. But that th- these people are still there for the anthem. They're still showing some kind of respect. It's just people are taking up whatever bias they've had, whether it's racial, cultural, just, uh, you know, that whole MAGA movement. Make exactly. America great again. And exactly. just sticking to it and finding a point to attack. Whereas, you know, the, the really... really the realism, sorry, of the situation is that people are showing respect. They're still there. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. And you're you're spot on about this. He actually, uh, one of the reasons that he decided to start kneeling was he had a conversation with a fellow NFL player who's also a veteran. And the guy basically said, look, I'm totally down with you protesting. Sitting is more disrespectful. Uh, and I think the better way to do it is kneeling because, uh, and Evan would probably know this, but when you are... Uh, delivering a you know the 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 uh, the kind of folded flag to someone's parents who someone who died in battle, uh, the players will traditionally or the the players the uh, the soldiers will traditionally give them the flag and then kneel uh, as a sign of respect for the sacrifice that the family has made right so like that and that is literally what Kepernick had spoke spoke to this guy about and he literally said this is actually a really like you know classic version of, of, of giving respect. And it's, 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 it's amazing how this has been perverted into this kind of attack on the military when, you know, it's, it's so clearly to me has almost nothing to do with the military. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. People have really brought that into play. I think it's just whenever the flags in play that the military is involved, obviously we've got the history of them buying into the NFL, the whole, you know, standing up for the anthem, the jets flying over. But whenever the flag's involved, the military are always going to be involved. So. Well, and that's a really interesting aspect that, you know, that, you know, that's been a flashpoint. And this isn't the first time it's been a flashpoint in American sports, but it's not present, you know, to the same degree or even at all in European football. Right. The concept of, you know, nationalism and, and you know, having national symbols right. and the military present at all the matches like it's just not a thing that happens. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of unique, I think, to the American situation where in Europe, especially we're seeing Catalonia, it's, it's really this kind of even more local tribalist um, impulse that is, you know, way stronger than kind of the, the background nationalism of like American football. Totally. To the point to that point, Evan, we've seen, you know, Barcelona and, and, and people in Catalonia boo during the Spanish anthem, actually. And, you know, we've also seen. Piquet be booed in span in like stadiums all across Spain because of his outspoken feeling of being Catalan. And, you know, it's interesting because not all Catalonians like feel the way Piquet does about wanting like having very much a Catalan identity that supersedes his Spanish identity. Uh, but, you know, it's definitely. And so like we see during the Spanish national games, right? So there are two things that are really interesting about this. First of all, there are no words to the Spanish national anthem. So whenever you watch these matches, if anyone is moving their lips on the Spanish team, it's actually quite a big deal because it means that they are singing the uh, uh, the, uh, the old fascist anthem, right? So like that is... Yikes. Uh, yikes. Whoa. Um, so they, they don't sing during during the national anthem. And the the other thing maybe is, they should write some new words. Well, they did, and it's just it never really caught. So like never, basically didn't, didn't catch on. Right, and it's okay, it's new a, national time for a new anthem. Then. Well, right, and one of the things that people forget about Spain was that actually the, Spain was a fascist dictatorship until not that long ago. So like it was nineteen seventy nine or something. These are, right, these are not like these are not uh you know old ancient wounds like obviously nothing in the 20th century is really ancient that's one of the things that i think americans really don't understand like the idea that the americans like segregation legal segregation was legal right segregation was legal in this country within the last 50 years like that's absurd and we we you know treat it as if it was long ago just like in Spain, like people like to pretend that this is a some this is a nation that has been you know created and existed forever, but really like this is only a few 
decades you know, separated from an absolutely brutal dictatorship that you know my father was grew up in Madrid under under Franco and like this is this is like very very recent stuff like this is not even like my great grandfather grandfather this is like really recent and still uh, uh, still really in living, raw. It's living memory, right? I mean, it, the people in the stands who feel something about the association of Madrid or Barcelona with political points of view that go back to the Civil War, like, that's because they lived it, right? They lived the the Franco regime. It's, it's right. um, so it's not history at all, actually. It's just, it's recent political it's, events. Exactly. And it's interesting when we talk about Madrid, I like to make this point that one of the earliest, the, the earliest you know, Real Madrid itself, just Madrid CF at this point, but was founded by like an abs- like the, one of the leaders of the Republican government. And Madrid's roots are in very much in this you know, non-fascist uh, Republican tradition. And then Franco co-opted it, right? But it's, and and because it co-opted it, that the club has been a symbol of of this kind of fascist stuff. So it's to the point where at the beginning of the match today against Espanyol, you heard people chanting like "Viva España" and all this stuff, uh, you know, in reference directly to what's going on in Catalonia, which is a little bit gross to me personally. <laughs> but like, also like this is this is an extremely you know, polit- highly politicized error uh, that's going on around European soccer. It's constantly politicized. I mean, look at, and this is the last thing I want to say about this because like, I know I keep ranting, but if you look at Serbia, right, you have Partizan Belgrade and Red Star Belgrade that are literally the sports arms of two armies, right? So the Red Star is the, is the, the, was the sports association that was associated with the communist government and the communist army. And Partizan was the uh, the 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 sports wing of the kind of right wing fascist ar- uh, uh, army like that's literally tied to armies not just tied to like political parties this is like and it, and it, again this is rather recent history the government of Tito and all these things right so like I think I think that's just fascinating too and it's something that Americans like we really really don't get in our extremely corporatized sports world yeah I mean it's like like as I go back to saying. The clubs were for uh, our sports clubs were formed with identities in mind. You know, you have the army teams. You have CSK in Moscow. You know, formed from the army. They're all clubs right. based on uh, political beliefs. Whereas in America, I don't. I you'd have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's an NFL team or an MLB team that is formed on the basis of a singular political identity or a belief. No, I don't. In a think major so. league. I think maybe the closest you can get is like the Green Bay Packers organization still being like very much tied to its city and like the kind of packing union that, you know, it it was formed as a part of, but not really not though, because really these are all, I think what, what the Americans we did was all of these, these, you know, sports teams kind of leaned into the idea of themselves as a brand more than themselves as an identity. And the, the political identity is more like, you know, the teams create an identity rather than people having an identity and bringing them to the teams, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where we're going as well with European sports. I mean, you see a lot of teams, you know, buying into that whole quote-unquote brand type thing. I mean, I don't think there's anything more that Barcelona, the club, especially the financial interest of the club, would love to be more to be separated from this Catalonian yeah. identity because it is going to drag them. If this carries on, it is going to drag them into a situation of uncertainty, but it is tied that you cannot escape that identity because that is what it is formed upon. You know, no matter who's in charge, no matter if it's a capitalist, a communist or a socialist, it's always going to be tied to where it came from right. and who built it. And it's usually the fans that built it. It's usually the fans that are buying mm-hmm. the tickets and helping them succeed. 
So, so we were talking about, you know, the Italian league in the, in the lead in here. Could you say something just about how, uh, you know, politics and football play together in, in Italy? Cause I don't know much about it. I'm, I'm curious and you might know something. <laughs> um, I don't know too much because my Italian football interests are mainly uh, circle around Milan and whatever they get up to. Yeah. Um, but there, there is, of course, you know, it's, Italy's the birthplace of fascism through Mussolini and the Roman Empire and all that. So there are clubs you do do have supporters, clubs within with ties to fascism. In right. Italy, it's not seen as that bad to be a fascist. You know, it is it isn't seen as this racist or horrible thing where we we've made it into that sort of thing because the people we know to be fascists are massive racists and they're the type of people who go out and pick a certain group of people and go we don't want them anymore um in italy there is still um quite a strong support for fascism just because of where it came from and you know it's birthplaces there there's still ties to you know, yeah wait, pre- so prehistoric wait, ties wait. When I was in Rome, I thought it was funny, but it's also kind of scary. So whenever I was in a cab and we would drive by this like balcony where Mussolini made some famous speech because it was near my hotel, every single fucking cab driver pointed out that balcony with like a sense of pride. They're like, oh, yeah, this is the place where Mussolini gave some speech. <laughs> I'm like, that's fucking horrifying. Like, can we yeah. just tear down the balcony, please? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to be said for how they treat fascism. I mean, in its... In a, in its in politics is perfect form every single political doctrine isn't racist or it isn't you know going to kill people it's only when people take on those identities you know we see communist dictators kill people we see fascist dictators kill people we see capitalist um, presidents and politicians kill people whomever you are if you've got an evil slant you're going to use that doctrine to kill people but um with uh, fascist fascism in Italy, um, there's a strong respect for it. I don't know where that comes from, to be honest. It's quite strange, as you said, Evan. It's quite weird. Um, but you see, there's a big communist following for Livorno as well. Um, if you want to look up any pictures or videos of Livorno, <laughs> they hold up massive red star flags and stuff. Cool. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> and that's completely against the identity of being an Italian. So, oh, yeah, yeah uh, I was check actually out that. under the impression also that Roma and Lazio kind of broke down on political grounds with Lazio being kind of the, the club of uh, the kind of right wing fascists and Roma being the club of the Republicans and um, the uh, the more of the left wing. Uh, and it's it, I don't know if that's true, but that was I was under that yes. impression. Um, but it's also like this is it's all so cool. And it's such a cool context, I think, for. Uh, Americans and I think most of our listeners right now are Americans to hear like this stuff, uh, you know, the fact that sports were never really separate from politics at any point. And like the, it's only kind of a recent thing where the, the sports sports themselves have become so, you know, anesthetized and, and corporatized that we would pretend that they weren't very closely linked. Right. And, you know, we've seen so many players over the history of these two, you know, of, of, of European football and but also in in the United States right like a lot of players have have you know expressed political opinions and it wasn't until like kind of recently that players stopped and it was all like this kind of Michael Jordan you know view where his famous quote is uh, republicans buy shoes too and like that's kind of where american sports has mutated from this kind of period uh pre-war where there was like segregated all the leagues were segregated uh, and, you know, even the, the universities were actually where a lot of the sports were happening and the universities themselves were also segregated. And it's 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 fascinating to have mutated like this into this kind of corporatized, sanitized, uh, uh, you know, place where all the like political discussion is kind of 
cabined into this small place, uh, small like realm of acceptable conversations about how much we all love the, yeah, you know, the military and the flag and and the country, and all other political discussion is you know banished to a realm that would be quote unquote outside of sports, right? And I don't know, it's it's fascinating. I, I think the last thing that we should just quickly touch on is kind of where we go from here. Like, what do you think if you were you know talking to uh, any one of the numerous, I'm sure, Twitter people who tell you to stick to sports, like, how do you, how do we respond to that? Well, I'm fine with sticking to sports, but you, uh, people have got to understand that like, sports are built into politics, and politics is built into sports. I mean, when we see any presidential election, it's it's almost like Monday Night Football or something. You know, you have stats, you have everything come up. Yeah, it's it's built out like red team versus blue team. In sports, there's always going to be two teams that play each other, and it's just more about education. It's got kind of, people have just need to learn about the histories of the teams they support, especially if it's a European team, because you could be t- sticking your flag to some awful teams with awful backgrounds. You know, I've covered teams with Nazi backgrounds. I've covered teams with nationalist backgrounds, especially the ones Milan have faced this season in Albania, who have some of the, you know, supported an almost form of genocide. It's crazy. And um, the stuff happening in sports that's been forever happening is that people will always back the team that represent them, represents them the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that in Milan, especially. We have the uh, Derby della Maddonina, which is uh, Inter, of course, first Milan. Uh, the Inter were always seen as the club of the bourgeois and uh, Milan were the working class club. So when these two went head to head, it was uh, fireworks because it was us versus them. Hmm. It's always going to be us versus them, no matter if you're black, white or anything. It's always us versus them. And uh, you choose your group and you stick with your group. And unfortunately, we see that take a nationalist slant. Hmm. You know, with these white supremacist groups, this white pre- supremacist president. Um, yeah, sport is always politics and we cannot ever for the life of us escape that and it's, it's for a good reason i mean we follow sports for one reason that's because of the drama i mean if we followed sports and it was you know same thing week in week out even if we're winning every cup you know we have drama with transfers and all sorts of things happening we want drama in our sports and if it wasn't the story wasn't there we wouldn't follow it so right well that's why our sports around james thank you so much for coming on uh and uh, everyone should follow james on twitter and um do you if you want to plug anything that's on um that you've done recently uh go ahead i don't know if you uh, have any articles up or whatever yes yeah, sure. i mean if you want to follow uh an english club with a really strong history actually and a really good name um you should uh, come and visit us at 7500 to hold i mean aston villa are not a joy to follow but it's interesting for sure and you should definitely come along i really want you to come to this aston villa site yeah we write for fun um we really do enjoy it ourselves is a there. fun site i really do encourage people to check it out it's it's it's, it's at the very least it's fun to to be in that community all right james thank you so much for coming on great to have you no thanks for having me yeah thanks for having me one more give me more we want more god damn it i'm back to demand we get more we want more i want more